Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, hope you're enjoying the weather out there, wherever you are. And one of our guests is in Newfoundland, so I will talk to him about what the weather is like out there. Today, I'm delighted that it's our Law and Disorder panel, and it couldn't come at a better time, particularly in light of what's happening south of the border of the United States, but not only south of the border. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of you who've donated to the show. Thank you so much. Donations are always welcome. You can just go to the CIUT 89.5 website and just hit donate here. And I remind you, this is the only alternative radio station left in Toronto. It's where you'll hear alternative radio, the David Barsamian show, Democracy Now! and other great spoken word shows. So keep that voice alive. We need it in our mainstream media days. Uh, and to join me now on uh, the Law and Disorder panel, uh, no strangers to the show, we have uh, David Slavik, who's you was a U.S. political consultant, still is maybe, out there in Newfoundland, strategist, um, worked at the intersection of law and politics for almost 15 years, and now is the host of the popular show. And David, remind me at the end of this show to talk about your show, the popular oh, yes, show, absolutely. so we could let people know about that. And also, uh, Francois tanguay Renault, he's a professor of law at Osgoode, also has his doctorate of legal philosophy from none other than Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he's also the co-director for Jack and May Nathan Center in Transnational Human Rights, Crime and Security. So welcome, Francois, to the Radical Reverend Show. Hi, Sherry. Pleasure to be here. So let's jump right in with something that just happened. Uh, I just tweeted about it. I said it's the last, uh, hopefully the last, may not be, uh, barbaric act of a barbaric regime south of the border. But uh, there was just an execution, which I gather is the first time in 130 years that someone in the, the twilight of their days as president has done such a thing. Um, so I'm going to uh, throw this to you, Francois. Um, uh, I mean, first of all, for most of the world, the fact that the U.S. is still executing people at all is shocking. But talk about this one and talk about why. Uh, I mean, it's just a stunner to most of us to understand why this is going to be his last piece of legacy. Right. So as you've mentioned, for the last 130 years, no U.S. president has ordered the execution of federal inmates in the U.S. in the transition period that is post uh course, being uh, voted out of office, but pre-confirmation uh, of the new president. Now, there is no law preventing a president to do this, right? Uh, but it hasn't been done for 130 years. And what does that mean? It means that there's a convention, right? There's a, 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 a social or political rule that's set in to say uh, that presidents just don't do this, right? The death penalty, even though it is um, allowed in the United States, it, it exists, it's still a big deal. It's been the subject of constitutional litigation uh, for decades. It's a very fraught topic. So the thought um, seems to be in the US political realm that uh, those decisions were better left at the federal level to a president who uh, is, as it were, legitimately in power that is, who has been confirmed and has not been voted out. Now, as we know, uh, Donald Trump, who more or less, I want to say, uh, has been constrained by law during uh, his mandate. There was a lot of fear at the beginning that 
the rule of law as an ideal would just be uh, thrown to garbage and that we would see the ascendancy right away of a, of a dictator who didn't care about law. It seems that the legal framework has held. There was a lot of fear that if there were a second term, it would go by the wayside. But we've seen a president who's more or less tried to operate within the confines of the Constitution. Okay. Now, now, law is not the only thing that constrains the political realm. I've just mentioned political conventions. We have them in Canada, right? There are no laws saying who should be prime minister or how the prime minister should be chosen in Canada or how uh, the governor general uh, should uh, behave in terms of whether he or she should sanctions law, grant an early prorogation of parliament. All of that is governed by convention, by agreement, as it were. As we know, Donald Trump doesn't really care for social norms, right? He operates as someone who just wants to operate or do things as he thinks them to be to be fit. And so, right, playing with the lives of people um, in ways that defy 130 years of uh, general wisdom that simply didn't occur to him as something that he should um, help back from from doing. And so so it's very true to form. I'm not surprised to see this. Uh, I don't think it's the last thing that we're going to see of Donald Trump, to be frank. Uh, there are a few more days left. Uh, it is heart-wrenching. It is terrible. As we know, there are many arguments against the death, the death penalty. They're not part of this debate. Uh, let's hope this is the end of this kind of, of political attitude in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and I'm going to throw it to you, David. I mean, this is the execution uh, we're talking about here on the Radical Reference Show. You know, of a black man. Um, uh, you know, and and one of the first people, of course, who spoke out about this um, was none other than Sister Helen Prejean, uh, who's been a long um, opponent. Um, many, many like her in the states. Many, you know, coming out of the the religious. Uh, left, as it were, um, you know, opposed to capital punishment. And, and just his history on race issues, I mean, alone, um, one would think this, where is the, you're a strategist. Like if you were the strategist for the Republicans, why would you do this? It's shocking. So th there's really two two aspects to it because it's interesting. There's a celebrity aspect to this that you would think that actually would appeal to to uh, to President Trump. Uh, it's essentially Kim Kardashian West and Kanye West have been in, active in in lobbying uh, lobbying for this to uh, uh, to be commuted uh, for the sentence to be commuted. Um, there are uh, any number of sort of political uh, people that are on his side. So like, uh, for example, Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr are working on, we're working on the defense for this, this case. Uh, but I think the Republicans really need to rely on this law and order framing. Um, you're going to see uh, a, Broad change in some of the policies, I think, under Joe Biden, especially some, um, you know, nods and winks and nods to the Black Lives Matter uh, sort of movement and the uprising, uh, but not as much as you might think. But the the key factor is that the Republicans need to define themselves as the the party of law and order, and the Democrats as the party of lawlessness. Um, so that's the positioning, because it just seems strange that the, these would be the last moves, you know, um, what he's threatened as a series of executions in his final yeah. days. I mean, I, it, uh, yeah, I mean, this is not playing to the center. Yeah. Let's put it that way. This is no. playing to the right. Far there's, right. Thir there's 13 additional um uh, executions that are slated before the inauguration of uh, President Biden. Um, so they, there will be, this is the first of many, and you're going to see these stories pop up more and more in the next few days.
I mean, it's just, to me, it's shocking on so many levels, most of them ethical. Um, but I mean, you know, the, just the idea of capital punishment in the United States, so out of sync with um, most uh, of the West. So how is this polling? Is this popular in the States? I think overall, uh, capital punishment has been fallen, you know, much more in the uh, sort of percentage of what people who support it, with the majority of people not supporting capital punishment at this time. This is an opportunity to solidify solidify that base amongst those sort of more reactionary aspects of the Republican uh, Party. it's the sort of a last sort of statement of power. You know, it's the opportunity to say I'm still president uh, during this transition time. And as he's fighting, you know, to remain president through uh, many legal means, it's an opportunity to remind people that he's not gone yet. Yeah, let's talk about that too. So back to you, Francois. Um, and by the way, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show with a, a, a law professor at Osgood and uh, head of the Transnational Center there looking at human rights and crime and security, um, Francois Tanguay Renault and David Slavic, a political strategist uh, for many, many years and host of the Popular Show, which we'll hear about later. Um, Francois, um, there have been many legal challenges uh, by the Republicans um, about the election results. And uh, that's been an ongoing theme. Uh, at first seemed to be just, you know, the dying uh, words of a crazy president, uh, but apparently not. Apparently, this is pretty popular in the Republican ranks. Uh, talk about that, uh, just from the legal point of view, you know, where what's happening there? And, uh, and of course, you know, the Constitution of the Supreme Court now, is it going to get there? What's happening? So, uh, so you're right, right? That, that, that hasn't died out yet. Trump has not conceded. And in fact, we've just seen um, 17 states coming out of the woodwork to challenge the legitimacy of the election. Um, so I'm a law professor. In legal circles, there is this word that is often uh, flies around, which is called lawfare, right? Lawfare from warfare, as in using law as a means to an end of getting to your political end by using by using law, however it can be used, right? So so you have many courts across the United States who've made it clear by now that the process was perhaps not immaculate, but clearly above board, and that any challenges were um, were, 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 were with that foundation, right? Uh, now, you see a number of political officials saying, we know this, and yet we're going to resort to law to try to mess the card. Why? Because law, the Republicans know this, bring legitimacy, right? They are, as David has just said, a party that wants to cast itself as a party of law and order, right? And here it's important to realize, right? We often think about that. The Canadian constitution is founded on this idea of the rule of law. Well, the rule of law is just one important political ideal. It's just one important values. There are many others, right? In this case, uh, it's in a way, not even taking that political ideal uh, seriously. It's making a mockery of it. It's to say, we're going to use procedure. We're going to launch challenges that are vexatious in the hope that the public is going to follow us and in the hope that uh, our gerrymandering of the uh, uh, judiciary that is putting uh, some of our uh, puppets in place uh, to render decisions that are um, favorable to us, even though they don't accord with the law are going to pay off, right? So, so that's you know people like Ted Cruz supporting Donald Trump and saying, look, maybe Amy Coney Barrett, maybe Brett Kavanaugh, and um, 
the like are going to show up, right? Uh, and, and, and do something that we've always hoped they would do. Uh, they told us a confirmation hearing they wouldn't do, but let's let's give it a go, right? So, so my sense is this is happening now. This is going to keep happening, right? A lot of people, uh, a colleague of mine at Yale Law School has already called the 2024 election in the U.S. as the most important election in history, right? <laughs> What's going to happen after the next four years? Are we going to be back at this, right? So there's only so much that can be done within four years. So, so the Supreme Court, uh, just to, to continue, Francois, uh, the, the Supreme Court and the stacking of it, I mean, it seems on the face of it so ludicrous, these challenges, and most of them have been dismissed. But does it have a breath? Does it have a chance of going anywhere at any time? Or is this just as much noise as they can make before he exits the White House? So, so far, I haven't read the arguments, so I can't comment specifically to them. But what we've seen so far are basically lawyers showing up in court and not making arguments. Mm just showing up in court in order to be seen to be in court, right? So we're seeing here seven, 17 attorney generals who want to be seen on job, uh, uh, to be on, on Trump's side, brandishing the law, quote unquote, but really not having much, m- many legal things to say beyond just, just harping over arguments that have already been made and have not succeeded. Okay, uh, David, I'm going to ask you, I think it's a line from... Um... Well, it's a line from Shakespeare, I think it's a line from Richard, but um, where he says, you know, the hearse horse laughs when they drag a lawyer away. And that's a few hundred years old. But, but I mean, let's talk about the ethics of this from the legal profession standpoint. I mean, are these lawyers doing this just for the money? I mean, that you just show up, you know, the case has no merits. Um, uh, you're doing uh, lawfare. I love that term. You know, don't you sign something before you come to the bar? I don't know. Speak to well, us. I, one thing I would I would say right off the bat is that the legal profession in the states and the legal profession in Canada are, are very different. Uh, you know, Francois can speak to this uh, more specifically about the Canadian context, but you know, under Canadian sort of. Uh, law association rules, there's this general idea that you should support the rule of law and that that's part of what your job is. That's not part of the job of, or the, or the duties of a American lawyer. Now there's, they take all sorts of oaths to their relative bar associations and, and uh, when they're sworn in. Um, but it's the number one role of a lawyer in the U S context is to be a zealous advocate for your client and to, to seek out those goals which are most suitable for your client within the law. That's what they're doing here. Also, you're seeing sort of a several-pronged approach to how this is being played out, where you're having this, you know, uh, Sidney Powell, who seems to be operating on her own, but is essentially loosening up and, and essentially getting the type of discovery and information that these attorney generals would need, uh, despite she's technically not working with the Trump campaign. That's the, that's, I find that very interesting because it's something that the right does really well is where they'll allow independent actors to do one part of their dirty business and then come in with the, the, the force of the, of, you know, the attorney generals or the p- politicians as well. So you're seeing um, the, the way that the Republicans are very good at sort of a, uh, a dis- like a disaggregated attack against all sides. And you just don't see that on, on the left. Now, what, what are your thoughts about the Supreme Court? I mean, we've, we've all watched as it's been kind of reconstituted. Um, and, and I'm going to ask, go back to Francois on this uh, too, a little bit later, but David, let's stick with you for now. Um, and, and, you know, there's lots of fear around that court. Um, for example, Roe versus Wade being reopened. It's like some landmark cases, um, uh, rights cases being being looked at again. And um, and it looks right now like the Biden administration won't have much to do with that. Um, 
right or wrong? And what's the way forward? What what does it look like for the Supreme Court? I think the Supreme Court is set. And, and you know, and the thing about about you know, sort of abortion law and things like that is that it is largely determined by the states and how the states approach their limitations on uh, the right to choose as we as we have have it in the United States. It's a little bit different than in the Canadian context where abortion is largely a healthcare decision and is uh, sort of outside the purview of these sort of weird draconian laws. Um, it's interesting to see what will happen with the Supreme Court in that the Supreme Court is so out of step with the general political will of the country and, and has been for some time. We, we say, you know, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but, you know, the fact is, is that that court has been heavily tilted towards conservatives, despite not their opinions being very out of the mainstream for the country. So that's from labor law to, to abortion rights, to healthcare, to even corporate, corporate liability. Um, so we're going to see a, a, a court that is largely antagonistic to the, the goals of the Biden administration. And we're going to see states attorneys generals operate through that court in order to hamstring any sort of uh, progress or any legislation that really counts. And I'm going to come back to you after I talk to Francois on this about um, the Democratic win, but let's, Francois, the Supreme Court and what, what Americans have to look forward to and, and uh, we all in the world looking on, what's going to happen, do you think? Uh, it's hard to know. Right. Well, in a way, it's it's easy to know. They're the kind of nominees who tend to stick to their guns and they're conservative nominees. So you can expect a conservative agenda being rolled out with a Democratic president. Uh, it's unclear what kind of measures are going to um, make their way up there. Uh, we still haven't seen much of Amy Coney Barrett. She hasn't been a judge for that long. Right. She has made her positions clear on many issues. But look, the jury is, is, is still out. Um, what I want to say is, uh, and coming back a bit to the discussion um, earlier, it's interesting. I was recently looking at many uh, judicial oaths of office across Canada and the United States. And the assumption there is often that, well, judges swear that they're going to uphold the law. But if you look across those judicial oaths, you also often see that justice uh, swear that they are going to um, try to do justice, right? Often, uh, the assumption is that justice is going to be made through law, right? The law is an element of justice, right? But the two values can sometimes come apart, right? And that's what you see that a lot of the Republican rhetoric around this being saying, even if the law is against us, what happened is unjust and you judges need to basically understand the realm of your role broader than you're typically understood uh, uh, you're typically understanding it, them, and we want you, even if the law says X, to do Y because that is the just thing to do, right? Uh, now that tactic could be used by the left too, right? And I think it's a a, a cautionary note, right? To say you could you could see left wing group going to in front of judges saying this is unfair even if the law says X, do Y. While the Republicans are just taking the same the same page of the playbook that the left has been using in front of the tribunals for in front of the courts for a long time, right? So the question then is how do the judge the judges understand justice? And here in the US, we know that the judiciary is extremely politicized and that uh, that idea of justice is perceived very differently by different kinds of, of judges, right? So so does judges include healthcare for all? Uh, does justice include a healthcare for all? Where we're, we're probably going to find out very soon if that's if that's the case, right? Um, and 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 so it's going to be interesting interesting in the next four years during the Biden presidency to see how much of a how much of an activist court we have in terms of trying to roll back 
policies that uh, the Trump presidency hasn't managed to roll back on its own. I'm going to slip back across the border for a second, Francois, before I let you go on this, because up here uh, we have what have not so affectionately been called slap suits. Um, we've seen this with developers and others, um, you know, where, you know, a community group with bake sales gets together enough money to challenge, say, some development on a wetland for using that as an example, maybe appropriate one in, in these days. Um, and uh, and then they they lose. And then the developer with much deeper pockets and lawyers on, on their staff um, go out after the people who raised the issue in the first place and uh, for damages. Um, uh, so, and we saw a piece of legislation that just came out of the Ford government here uh, ostensibly, I mean, I, I want to ask you both if you think this is going to hold up, you know, at a Supreme Court level here, but um, taking away people's right to sue long-term care homes for um, a dereliction of duty. Um, I mean, there's a class action suit, you know, kind of was just developing around that with some pretty good reason, lots of deaths coming out of long-term care. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, again, here's a government stepping in and saying, mm, no, and we're going to backdate it to March when the when the, the, the worst of COVID hit. Um, so so what do you think? I guess let's start there. What do you think the chances of that kind of legislation, um, you know, going through without challenge, legal challenges? Um, yeah. And, and, and also, you know, the, the the general gist, which is clearly what you're talking about with with lawfare in the states of lawyers um, acting for their clients. Um, possibly, you know, against what we might think is just, um, uh, simply because there's money there to do it and because they can, and steamrolling over people who don't have the means. So I, I haven't read the, the, the legislation in, in detail. My understanding is not that it's impossible to sue a long-term care home, is that the standard of liability is heightened. So whereas... In, in sort of in the normal course of things, a corporation, an individual who acts in a negligent way would be held uh, to be in a breach of duty of care versus the people towards who that duty of care is held and has to pay compensation if they harm these people in the process, then the standard would be heightened to gross negligence, right? And I think the thought here, or at least the way it's presented, is that um, long-term care homes are, play an important social role need to be um, uh, in a position to function, right? And that these lawsuits might just debilitate them to the point where they can't do what they're supposed to do. Now, of course, um, the law of negligence is an important uh, pole of accountability in our society, right? And the flip side of trying to allowing them to operate is that you might allow them to operate badly, right? Uh, and so the government here is uh, in a way, uh, trying to shield um, a social institution that is deserving of utmost scrutiny right now because it's protecting the most vulnerable or is there to protect some of the most vulnerable people or, or, or members of our of our society. So so it's slightly distressing, right? This is this is this is COVID at work, right? So you could use an emergency to try to justify things that you can't justify doing normally. History has uh, provided us with countless examples of this. This is this is one example, right? To say this kind of legislation would not go through otherwise, right? Um, can can COVID be the kind of you know uh, emergency justification, sort of panic button that allows uh, the government to pass this through, and then the courts just just close um, close a turn a blind eye to this, right? So so normally the common law that is. Uh, 
the law of judge the law that's made by judges in, in Ontario because law is not only made by legislations but also by judges uh, sets the standard of negligence as what I said what a reasonable corporation what a reasonable person would do right in the criminal context it's a higher standard right because the stakes are higher but in the civil context it's typically uh, typically negligence so so and the usual assumption is that a statute what the legislature says in the context of a, of a piece of legislation displaces the law of judges displaces the common law the question here is will the judges allow them to do this or will they try to find loopholes given the kind of policy considerations that I've mentioned, right? So, so this is yet to be seen, but I think it's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an alarming yet very interesting development. Yeah. Um, David, if you want to talk about, you know, the, this side of the border a minute and, uh, and the same kind of lawfare to use, uh, to use Francois' term um, that might be happening up here. Yeah, I, I think that you're going to see it. I, I always say that there is a, a little bit of United States creep that happens into Canada. Some of the best aspects of Canada are, are the ways they've rebuffed the American sort of policy and the way things are working. I think you're seeing, um, you know, politics come through the, you know, the provincial offices in ways that we haven't seen them before. I think you're going to see a lot of lawsuits uh, in the future, you know, rebuffing some of the, you know, COVID, COVID dictates as they get more, uh, uh, they get stronger uh, out of uh, Ottawa. I think you're going to see sort of the the federal government and the provinces running up against each other more and more um, as you see these uh, conservative uh, political figures at the, the provincial level looking to make a national uh, name for themselves. I mean, certainly um, provincially. I mean, we, we have this strange dichotomy up here, um, of, you know, with the conservative uh, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the progressive conservatives, the conservative party federally. Um, uh, you know, doing one thing and kind of uh, premiers, uh, uh, you know, challenging Trudeau about his response to COVID. And yet um, at the provincial level, some of the worst results are under conservative premiers here. Um, uh, uh, but let's, you know, just just before we leave the United States and, and move, you know, genuinely across the border, um, I just, you know, final thoughts from you, David, about the Democratic win, and I'll, I'll frame this. I mean, so, so I mean, yes, uh, they won. There's no question, <laughs> despite what Trump's trying to do. Um, but I mean, you know, di- but you know, in some circles, it's now being discussed that it actually was a pretty terrible campaign, and that they made significant losses too, mm-hmm. um, and that you know, uh, what's going to be, what's this going to look like when it t- comes time to govern when the new administration takes over, um, mm-hmm. and what kind of you know, um, I know you know um, there have been from the squad uh, sounds of you know, the, first of all, the, from the, the the mainstream of the Democratic Party blaming the squad for their losses and vice mm-hmm. versa. Um, what, but there were losses. I mean, it was a terrible campaign, yeah. even though they so, won. So talk about that. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, in the past, I would say, um, 12 years, you would see amongst the Democrats, a very coordinated campaign from the presidential uh, ticket down. And that was really something that was really an important part of the Obama wins and um, of Hillary doing as well as she did, despite the loss. The thing that we did not see this year, and this is largely because of an actual decision made by the Biden the Biden campaign, was to see that connection between those down ballot races and the victory at the top. There was a lot of courting of uh, moderate Republicans who are just tired of Donald Trump, 
without a connection of Trump's behavior and the way he's indicative of a larger problem amongst the Republicans. So they said, you know, it's okay to be Republican, just vote for Joe Biden. And it provided a lot of political cover for some of uh, the more egregious sort of politicians who are, you know, the proto-Trumps or the people who really laid the groundwork for Trump to get reelected and even for some Democrats to lose their seats. There was a Democratic uh, campaign uh, committee call that was overheard by some uh, Washington, D.C. reporters. And in that call, there were a number of more centrist Democrats blaming uh, the sort of left wing of the Democratic Party and the messaging around Black Lives Matter, uh, including defund the police for some losses. There's actually no indication that that's actually even true. Um, The polling does not actually bear that out. In those places where people did run a very strong progressive campaign, even in Republican districts, they did they did as well as they would have normally or even better. Um, so we, we're not really seeing that. What we are seeing is that when you give uh, people a choice between a, a Republican light and a Republican, they're going to choose a Republican. And that's that's the key takeaway that they should come from the from this election is that, you know, you can't just offer uh, being a little bit better than Donald Trump. You actually have to offer something that is going to materially change people's lives. And just before we just finally move across the border, I want to, uh, you know, on our uh, another panel on the Radical Reverend Show, which everyone should tune into is, and that's what you're listening to, by the way, if you just tuned in, is um, left, left or leftist. And one of the panelists on that show said that described Trump as Obama's monster, that this grew out of the uh, uh, of, of the some of the policies of, of the Obama administration in bailing out Wall Street and not yeah. bailing out, uh, you know, uh, those folk who, who'd lost their homes uh, in yeah. terms of their mortgaging, uh, mortgaging yeah. and stuff. Um, and that and then said, and and that was, you know, Obama's monster. Imagine what Biden's monster will be, yeah. it, it, you know, depending on what his administration yeah. does. So any I thoughts think, about that? Mm-hmm. No, I have uh, several. <laughs> what I would say is that I think that, that in many ways that's true. I think that Obama was had an opportunity and he had a mandate that he squandered in 2008. We saw that come back and, and haunt them in the midterm elections there. We saw uh, the opportunity to, to make bold changes in, in the face of a crisis. Uh, Biden administration is largely in a similar situation. People are fed up with government. They're fed up with how things are running under the Trump administration. They want things to work right and they want things to work well for them. But without a bold policy vision, I do not think that they're going to be able to garner the support they need uh, to get the sort of technocratic changes that the Biden administration would be more prone to. Um, as many of you know, who, who are regular listeners have heard me on here before, I um, I used to work for a think tank called Third Way, which is a centrist think tank in DC. And they do a lot of great work around, working around the edges and you know pushing for sort of you know moderate policies. Um, I don't think that that's gonna work in this era. I think that the time for progressive change is now and that people are seeing what the bottom of the safety net looks like. You know, we have more people up for eviction than even during the Dust Bowl era or, you know, even the the deepest depths of the of the depression uh 18 million people are about to be evicted next month uh we have seen no financial uh, help along the way we see states really mismanaging their unemployment insurance programs where they're, they're not actually getting people the help they need even those people who are you know the rightful people under sort of this uh this neoliberal meritocracy and you're you're seeing that 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 faith is eroding in the government. If you don't come in with some bold some bold action, I don't think they're going to gain the type of popular support that they're going to need to carry through the midterms or to to hold on to the office in 2024. 
Okay, let's, um, we could go on and on about uh, the, the American empire, but let's move back across the border here. Francois, I'm gonna turn it to you and let's talk about COVID and some of the legal issues that it's raising, uh, uh, particularly now um, uh, where we're, we're looking at vaccines coming out um, or certainly one vaccine that's making its way here, it seems pretty quickly and being administered as of this week. Um, I, I looked at some stats and it was kind of interesting and I think a little, frightening. Um, but um, in the States, for example, 58% um, uh, said, yes, we'll get the vaccine. Uh, the remaining um, folk are either saying absolutely not, about 25% of them, and the remaining, um, uh, you know, whatever that percentage is, saying, mm, don't know, unsure. In Canada, it's not that much better. Um, it's about, you know, instead of 40 36%. Yes, thirty-six percent are saying yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so here you have a situation um, where, um, and you had uh, just on the news the other night, Michael Bryant, head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, coming out warning about mandated vaccines and you know things like man. Uh, vaccine passports and things. And, and listen, I have lots of issues with Michael Bryant as the head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, but but I mean, they, they do exist and uh, this is this is happening. Um, so we're, talk to us about this. Um, what what does this raise uh, in, in the legal field for you? So, so we've been talking about the US and how the US feeds into Canada, right? So, so the libertarian ethos has a firm grip on the US political imagination. In Canada, my sense is that's never been as sharply defined as of now, to be honest, right? We're having uh, this idea of freedom being brandished high and strong uh, more forcefully than I've, and I've ever seen. And, and, and my sense is, well, there are probably good reasons for this, right? We've never had such uh, mass social control um, sort of measures rolled out all at once, right? So starting from early lockdowns to um, sort of general advice to wear masks, to uh, sort of conditioning of what people can do when, what business can, uh, where and when business can operates according to what uh, criteria. And so the vaccine is basically uh, yet another iteration of this, right? And, and the question that is being asked and is jumping to everybody's mind given lockdowns, given masks is, well, are governments going to force everyone to be vaccinated? Right, so, so here the distinction is important between forced vaccination and mandatory vaccination. Nobody is talking of governments going into your house with syringes and just jabbing you forcefully, right? So, so that uh, there's no doubt to my mind would be on, a, on a countless grounds unconstitutional, uh, and no government wants to go close to that. The question of mandatory vaccination, though, uh, is is an interesting one, right? So. So we're having a tool that has been developed that promises to reduce transmissibility of um, or, or spread of a disease that has uh, proved deadly. It's not fully efficient. And that's the issue, right? So even if we were to vaccinate, vac vac vaccinate everyone, there would, still be, uh, there would still be issues. In fact, even if it were mandatory, COVID would st still be a problem, right? Given the that we're told the vaccine is only 90% uh, uh, efficient, right? So, so the talk of mandatory vaccination is talk of, well, if you don't get vaccinated, then you won't be able to do certain things, right? You may not be able, your kid may not be able to go to school, right? Uh, your kid, you might not be uh, allowed to go back to work. Uh, 
And so the question is, you might suffer as a result of a decision not to, to get vaccinated. So the decision is still yours, but there might be consequences to this. Now, to be clear, in the context of schools, um, it's still the case that most schools require vaccinations, but there are exemptions that are granted to uh, parents of kids and kids who have, for example, religious, good religious reasons or good conscientious reasons to object to uh, having uh, having uh, vaccines. And, and there's some, some sort of regulation um, around that, right? So, so the question now is then, will uh, mandatory vaccination become the norm? Uh, governments seem to be shying away from this because they're seeing the popular pushback. They're political creatures. They, do, they, wanna, they wanna be there to see another day after the next uh, election. Um, they're seeing that there might be constitutional problems with, with that, right? So uh, our constitution guarantees uh, freedom of religion, uh, freedom of conscience, like sort of truly held religious beliefs are, are protected. So, so they would need to carve out exceptions for that. Our constitution also provides some protection uh, against laws that are overbroad. That is laws that um, might uh, achieve their purpose related to some people, but not all, such that they cast their net uh, too widely, right? And and some people are saying, well, maybe some of these vaccines law are like this because not everybody may need to get vaccinated or threatened, etc. Even though the counter argument to this is, well, herd immunity requires everybody to be vaccinated, right? So, so I don't think we're at the gate of mandatory vaccination, but at the same time, if it became uh, a, a real a question for, for, for policymakers, my sense is some arguments can be made both ways, and then our constitutional orders has uh, instruments that allows it to balance competing considerations, right? No right is absolute in the Canadian Charter. They can, any infringement of right can in certain circumstances, and the Supreme Court has spoken of pandemics in the past as being one of those, as in the kind of circumstances in which some rights could be justifiably infringed, right? And therefore, and therefore upheld. Are we justifiably infringing on rights right now in our lockdown, for example, in some red areas of Ontario by shutting small business or forcing mask wearing and in stores, etc. I, I know that that's, you know, it's not actually a law, but, um, but I mean, we are, we already have uh, have, have you can be fined you can be charged um already for mask wearing for example um would not uh, the vaccinations be i mean that's obviously arguably more invasive but um is that uh not kind of along the safety rung and, and similar to you know measles vaccines for school entrance that kind of thing right so 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 the the question there when it comes to race limitation if is whether the the limitation of the right is necessary and proportionate. Why there's so much debate right now is a lot of the measures that have been rolled out by uh, public health agencies are measures that are only efficacious to a certain uh, sort of certain percentage, if you want. Uh, and vaccines are like that too. It's a high percentage, but it's, we're only we're not talking more than ninety or ninety five percent. That leaves uh, some. Uh, People to, to be left hostage to chance, right? So, so the, the a court faced with uh, the question of whether an infringement of constitutional or charter right is is uh, justified will ask, right? Is it necessary, uh, and is it proportionate? Uh, proportionate, well, you know, a lot of people are dying. Necessary, you need to ask, right? How efficacious the measure is, right? I wrote a paper earlier during COVID, along with some colleagues at U of T in Ontario Tech, about the COVID Alert app. Right, And our point in that paper was to say, well, if the app is going to be successful, it needs to be 
mandatory and the information needs to be collected centrally. Now, there are a lot of red flags that are going to be raised around this, around the questions of rights, but the question of whether the limitation is justified will hint on whether that tool was efficacious and therefore necessary to prevent the deaths. The government saw this, understood the argument, and decided to adopt a, an app that does nothing, which is an app that is um, purely voluntary and the, where the information is just exchanged from form to form, not centralized, right? So, so uh, sort of political smokescreen. Vaccines are not that, right? We think they're going to work. We don't know whether they're going to work, right? They'll only be tested so far. We don't know how long the immunity is going to last for. We're starting to find out that some people are reacting badly to them, anaphylactic shock, et cetera. Uh, we don't know uh, what percentage of the population will indeed uh, end up being protected. But I, I think we're, we're talking with a much more efficacious tool here. So, so if uh, sort of rise infringing measures were to be adopted, my sense is the vaccines are, are, are going to be the real test case. Right. I look forward to see what governments are doing here. Uh, we haven't really, really, we don't have much material to work with yet. Yeah, David, weigh in on this. So, what what do vaccines raise in terms of legal issues, and and what do we have to look forward to? Because clearly, there's a lot of gray area out there. I I think that vaccines are going to fall into an area that we're going to see increasingly more and more in, in a world where uh, the intersection of health and commerce are going to uh, be butting heads. I think that you're going to see the types of civil liberty type restrictions not come from governments, but from corporate actors. I think you're going to see airplanes say, if you want to fly, you have to have the vaccine. You're going to see uh, stores you know, asking for cards to see if you were vaccinated. Aren't those challengeable? Well, yes, of course, but then, yeah, absolutely. And that, but that you, most people are not in a position to take a, a case to the Supreme Court. Most people are not in a position to to wait to get serviced. Most people are in a, not in a position to not go on that work trip if they have to. And that's the thing is that, you know, we can make a lot of uh, assumptions about rights and what's, you know, what's like uh, redressable under law. And we can, you know, really have great discussions about those. And those things can play out in the courts and, and in government and through the legislature. But you can also see a world where, you know, if Air Canada uh, requires that that vaccine, I can't get back to the mainland, you know, and that's, that's, that's the fact is that we're going to see those types of sort of neoliberal uh, off, off putting of the sort of social responsibilities and, and the restrictions onto the, the corporate sector. And I think that you're going to see um, uh, a lot of funding uh, for these organizations that are getting bailed out and things like that tied to COVID restrictions and COVID policies. And I think that that's where you're going to see the government actually make its hand shown. Um, now, so a rights issue to you, though, David, um, where, you know, is, is not the common good, like, let's say, vaccines here. So even if they're not 100% efficient, and I don't think any vaccine ever was, I mean, we pretty well eradicated smallpox, so maybe that's one, but I don't even think that was 100% efficient, but 90 to 95% efficient. Um, and we know that we need a certain number, you know, number in the community to be vaccinated, to have any kind of real herd immunity. Um, isn't that the common good overriding an individual's right um, uh, in the same way that we're required to wear masks and might get fined if we don't, or other like sort of commonplace things, I, again, more invasive, no doubt. And, and, Questions, absolutely. Um, but what would you say to that argument? So it's really interesting because I, I would prefer a world where we could go outside and act normally and and not worry about the disease and and you know contagion. I mean, I think that that's I think all of us do want that. And you know, I think that 
you know, in that in a perfect world that would work that way. Um, I think we're not seeing a perfect vaccine. You know, I'm not against taking the vaccine. If I was actually eligible to take the vaccine, I would. I I can't because of uh, of allergy reasons. Um, but the, there's a world in which we have to make the distinction. Is this this isn't the measles vaccine? This isn't the chickenpox vaccine. This isn't something that was tested over years and double line tests and looked at a large population, looked at by you know across racial groups, across sex with pregnant people, longitudinal studies on whether that's going to cause sterility or, or fertility issues. And I, I, like I said, I would like a world where if that was a perfect vaccine or, or we could be more trustful of what the results are, then I, I would be more comfortable with that. It's especially when we're, we're talking about something with this, and I'm not a scientist, but uh, you know, the Moderna vaccine is very novel and it works in a very new way that we haven't seen or really played out anywhere else. And I think asking, asking people to take a traditional vaccine is one thing. And I think asking people to take a vaccine that has a profound effect on how their body operates is another. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was interesting because I posted about this and uh, some of the, the voices that came back on just on Twitter were um, were say, you know, saying, well, this is, you know, this has been going through the same kinds of testing that others have. To, to your point about the measles vaccine, I mean, I remember getting the measles, vac uh, well, not the measles vaccine, but getting a number of vaccines in school, like they lined kids up <laughs> and injected us, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, did our parents say something? Maybe, I don't even know. Um, but I mean, here's the thing. I mean, a lot of those vaccines in reality were tested on large portions of population without the kind of you know rigor that yeah. some of the newer ones have gone through. Um, so we have long been guinea pigs for this in in many ways. Not that that's a good thing, but um, I think people are just so hungry for uh, some light at the end of this COVID tunnel. Yeah. I think that's a simple reality, right? Yeah. What do you think governments should be doing as these vaccines roll out? I mean, what do you think the you know the the best role for government is here in terms of David saying, for example, you know. Uh, corporations taking it upon themselves to make their own laws. Um, and really, uh, you know, those laws affect the way we live, like flying and going to school and doing just about anything, going to work, for example. There are many ways to govern. One is through law and another is through guidance, education, et cetera, right? So uh, I think most uh, governments, at least in this country, have understood that uh, enforcement through sanction is not what gonna, going to get us to the end of COVID. Right. So a lot of people have also been frustrated by the fact they say, well, look, you have this guidance out there and you don't enforce it. That was that this lockdown is not a real lockdown. I see my neighbors like, you know, getting together, et cetera. What's happening here? Right. So government here is really appealing to our, our goodwill and our sense of, of of, you know, being decent citizens and caring for our neighbors. Right. So there's a lot of disinformation about vaccines, about what vaccines mean. It, 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 it kind of merges into uh, this current of anti-vaccine that has been around, you know, perhaps furiously for many years down south and here. Um, so my sense is the first thing the government has to do is really double down on education, right? So mm -hmm. I've been part, speaking to a number of doctors recently who, and they're all giving me conflicting guidance. Some of them are saying, well, you know, I'm personally going to wait because I don't know, right? What I told my parents when the HPV vaccine came out was that, you know, they shouldn't get it right away because we didn't know, and I'm not going to change my guidance now, et cetera. Whereas, well, we know, right, that, uh, you know, 
it's been tested. It's not that it hasn't been. It's been tested in many countries very fast. We don't know in terms of long-term effect. It's true that some of these vaccines are, are acting uh, in terms of uh, on, on, on genetic codes in ways that uh, haven't been done, but been done before. But at the same time, the point is, look, a lot of people are dying and a lot of people are going to continue to die. Can we decrease that risk, right? Give people the opportunity a fair opportunity with all the education to make that decisions is my sense that as a community, most people are going to see the light and are going to go and get this vaccine, right? The point, if you try to ram it down their throat, then you might, you know, you know, get them to get their back up and then we're back on to, to square one, right? So, so let's educate ourselves, you know, let's try to be good to each other. And I think that's what's going to get us to the end of COVID. And I think vaccines are going to be a big part of it. Uh, it's interesting to, in terms of do what I say and not do what I do in terms of our own Ford government here in Ontario. Um, I mean, you know, uh, they've been appeared at all oppressors without masks. You know, I, I know it's a camera angle thing, but still they're under, they're in one room, not family, you know, they're, and then they tell you, you know, some, some senior living alone can only have one person over for Christmas. And <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very, um, people are getting angry at showing in the polls. That's probably a good thing, I think. Um, but I mean, it's, it's uh yeah and big box stores get to stay open i mean I, I remember one person tweeted out and said you know i can't have more than i don't know three people over you know for christmas so we'll just meet in walmart's in aisle three you know uh, join me there because there we can have the whole family and you know like nobody's going to stop us uh, so i mean there's been a lot of that happening um and uh and, and so maybe just david a comment on what has been happening in terms of uh, of government interaction with the pandemic. I think, you know, really north and south of the border, you're seeing a patchwork approach that I think that because we have a nationalized media and internationalized media, we're seeing people have a lot of confusion about what's going on in their own, their own communities what their actual restrictions are, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, uh, how you, how many people you should interact with, what kind of bubbles you should be keeping, whether you should have bubbles at all. Um, and because of that, especially in Can the Canadians sense, you're, you're hearing that across the CBC and, you know, sort of these global news, et cetera, et cetera. And I think people are, are, there's a little bit of regulatory fatigue going on. And I think that without, um, you know, it's very hard to, you know, be Winston Churchill. It's very hard to be FDR. You know, it's hard to be these these great leaders in, in great times. And um, I think that what you're seeing is that it's when you have government officials who are not committed to governing in the way that we would like in a civil society, then you're going to see these disconnects between what they do and what they say. And I think that that erodes uh, faith in government. And, I, and in some ways, I think that's their goal. Yeah, I mean, we, we've certainly seen jurisdictions do it better in terms of COVID. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. You've been listening, of course, to the Law and Disorder panel here on CIUT 89.5 FM or on podcast, wherever you get podcast, Apple, uh, SoundCloud, whatever. The, the sound, uh, the podcast uh, you should be hearing uh, uh, on the weekend um, and uh, certainly the radio show you'll hear 4 to 5 p.m. on Monday at CIUT, which is where you're listening to it, I hope, or on your local podcast. Um, I'm delighted to have had as guests, uh, Francois uh, Tanguay-Renault and David Slavic, um, both uh, legal experts, different uh, fields. Um, uh, Francois up at York University as a professor um, and also co-director of a center up there that looks at um, civil rights 
crime and security internationally or transnationally. And uh, David, of course, um, who's been uh, done a lot of work in the interstices between policy and law um, for 15 years south of the border and now runs uh, his own show, The Popular Show. So David, tell us about The Popular Show. So The Popular Show is a uh, show that focuses on populism, pop culture, and society. Um, it is uh, myself and two professors from Royal Holloway, as well as an additional host. Um, we have uh, had some really great uh, guests on, including Peter Hitchens, the brother of Christopher Hitchens, where we talked about uh, a right case against lockdowns from sort of more civil libertarian aspect. We talk to we've next week we're talking to three labor MPs about uh, class regionality and the rejection of anti liberal anti populism and then we're also talking to Thomas Frank if as you may know is the author of what's the matter with Kansas about his recent book the people know and I, I think you can check it out at uh, patreon.com slash the popular pod or put the popular show in iTunes uh, YouTube or anywhere else you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you, David. And Francois, any, anything you want to highlight <laughs> before we close? Uh, you know, not, not very much, right? So higher education is under a lot of pressure right now to try to, it has had to pivot during COVID. Uh, we don't know what that's going to leave us with, but I think of this great COVID experiment as a time of opportunity. I hope that a lot of good things are going to come out of it. So distance education has been hard for all, but now we know that it works and can something can be done with this might lead to greater accessibility. I'm looking forward to university sort of uh, getting out of their rut and being a bit more creative when it comes to delivery um, of education in future years as a result of this. Um, and in terms of law and disorder, it's funny that we focused in, on the U.S. And, and Canada I was reading the news yesterday and uh, what's happening over the over the pond in China, right? So this great media mogul, Jimmy Lai, was just uh, framed under the new Hong Kong security law, under the cover of law, right? So, 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 so China having used COVID as this uh, this great sort of cover for uh, asserting its rule over Hong Kong in ways that violate international treaties, etc. There's a lot more to discuss, right? And oh, and absolutely. that's the COVID thing. COVID, COVID has generated. Uh, issues across the world, right? So people say globalism is dead. Well, I think COVID has shown that it's not, right? We might think locally about solutions, but we need to think globally about problems if we're gonna really find true true solutions to, to the real problems, which are all global. Absolutely, thank you for that. And yes, we did run out of time, uh, but we will talk about that next time on Law and Disorder. Absolutely, what's happening internationally. Um, and thank you again to my guests. And please, again, remember, donate to CIUT 89.5 FM, only alternative station left, uh, Kitchener to Coburg and Buffalo to Barrie. Uh, and also, of course, uh, keep tuning in to the Radical Ribbon Show. Until next time. Mm -hmm.